This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. I'm not sure if you've seen this yet, but Helix just published the Enrollment Growth Playbook, the largest collection of adult enrollment growth strategies ever released to the industry, outlining how Helix grows their partner's enrollment eight times faster than the industry average. From determining growth opportunities to designing a marketing strategy, streamlining enrollment operations, solidifying a retention approach, and leveraging technology and data intelligence, the Enrollment Growth Playbook is an institution's step-by-step roadmap to adult student enrollment success. And you can download it today for free. Just visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. Hello, welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour. My name is Kevin Carey. I direct the education policy program at New America, and I'm joined by my co-host Libby Nelson from Vox.com. Hi, Libby. Hi, Kevin. So it's uh, it's our first sober Higher Ed Happy Hour. I think it's 11 in the morning. Um, <laughs> it's 11 in the morning. It's day 10, day uh, 11, day 10 or 11 10, of, of uh, Trump's America. Uh, it's January 30th, 2017, or 10:18, <laughs> as future generations will no doubt call this as they sift through the wreckage of our once proud civilization. Um, yeah. So day it's, 10 uh, seems a little early to start drinking before noon. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, it'll be at least day 30 before <laughs> before that just becomes de rigueur. Um, yeah, so we're just we just have coffee and water here. Um, uh, we may be joined uh, by a special guest uh, in a little bit. Um, but if we don't, I won't say who he is. So we Surprise. All right. We right. may or may not have a surprise guest. Yeah, if he, uh, if he comes. But Kevin and I have stuff to talk about. Yeah. Um, so we're going to jump right into it and talk about uh, uh, Betsy DeVos's nomination to be the Secretary of Education. Um, so I guess she's scheduled for a vote tomorrow. She's scheduled committee? for a vote tomorrow. I think right. one thing that's really been interesting to me is that she has become really a locus of opposition in a way yes. that I didn't necessarily expect. That's right. Yeah, well, I was out uh, at the um, uh, No Ban, No Wall protest yesterday mm-hmm. here in D.C. that started in Lafayette Park right around the corner from where we are now. Um, and there were a bunch of these uh, uh, anti-Betsy DeVos signs there. I know there were a lot at the Women's March. There um, was an actual anti-DeVos protest um, at Union Station yesterday morning that uh, I think sort of got lost in right. everything else that happened over the weekend, rightfully so. I, I had been going to go and report and then got caught up in news events. But I'm really I'm I wish I had finished the reporting I'm going to do this afternoon so I could like come to you with an answer. Um, but I just so, but for now I'll just say that this has surprised me a little bit. Her her confirmation hearing was very bad, um, objectively I yeah. think like it was really not an impressive performance. And even even her supporters are kind of like, well, the questions were unfair. You know, no nobody is saying she went out there and did a did a bang up job. Right. Um, the interesting thing about the opposition to me is that a lot of it is not about her central education policy around vouchers, or at least that's not mm-hmm. the sense I get. Instead, she is someone who pushes progressives' buttons on a lot of different issues and then compounded it with this, like, laughably bad performance in the Senate. I think that's right. You know, she, I watched the whole hearings. It is one of these cases where <clears throat> things that are normally just interesting to me all of a sudden um, become... It's always a little bit surprised when you're like, oh, the, the, the rest of the world actually seems yeah, to that, care that, about Yeah, that this. broke through, especially in education. It's so rare right. for anything to break through. Um, you know, I mean, the, the rap or the, the concern about her, I guess, going in just based on her resume was that she was someone who, as we talked about in our last podcast, um, uh, uh, born and married into a lot of money, but had never has never actually run an organization or really had a like normal organizational job, mm-hmm. I don't think. And um, man, she did nothing to dispel any of that. Yeah. Is what I'll say. Yeah. I mean, Matt, that... Yeah, I have two points. One is Matt Iglesias made a point that I think would be familiar to you as someone who works at a nonprofit, which is mm. that anyone who is a big donor to nonprofits, right. as she is, is invariably the smartest, most interesting, yeah. most admired person when they walk into a room talking about that policy, because that's what you have to do with your, your funders. Mm. Um, and that she is just not used. She clearly was not used to being in an adversarial setting. I think that's right. And I think, my, I guess my... Um, off-the-cuff guess about the the opposition is um, a lot of these cabinet positions are a little abstract and mm-hmm. removed from people's day-to-day lives. You know, I mean, uh, this, the head of the EPA, I mean, most people have no interaction with the EPA, never have, never will, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's been to school. Um, and there are also a lot of educators out there who I imagine just feel like kind of insulted yeah. that, that someone lacking in any kind of conventional qualifications, I'll be as nice as I can, um, should get this job. Um, and then who kind of clearly hasn't done her homework or not enough of it or tried to do her homework, but that wasn't enough. Yeah, that's that's the striking thing to me. I think there are a couple things at play. I think she combines a lot of 
history and characteristics that just would set people off no matter what cabinet post she was up for. She's mm-hmm. she's wealthy. She's from a wealthy family. They are big donors. They're big dark money donors. Um, she supported several of the people who were questioning her in the Senate. That is all kind of stuff that was going to rile up the left anyway. Her family foundation is a big donor to focus on the family. So there is the anti-LGBT sort mm-hmm. of story. The, the weird, I mean, this is just such a weird data point even to me that like one of the points being rolled out in her favor is like, no, she's she's a big supporter of gay marriage, which is just a, a weird statement on on how far we've come right. as a country. Like, I can't imagine George yeah. W. Bush rolling that mm-hmm. rationale out for the Secretary of Education of all right. of all positions. So there's that. There was her strange answer on guns in schools that involved grizzly bears, which yeah. I have a small bee in my bonnet about because I really think it was like it was like a Daily Show moment. Like, this isn't really important, but it was the moment yeah. that like. A lot of people responded emotionally to in a way that maybe I, as a, a heartless policy wonk, just don't connect yeah, with. Yeah, that was like coming out of the, you know, after I finished watching, that was probably like 12 on my list of troubling moments. Mm-hmm. And But, you know, right, it plays well. Um, it just seems absurd. And if you're if you're predisposed to be suspicious, then it's just like, right, of course. Right. Um, she was just kind of, I think, unwisely trying to make a, some kind of clever point. Yeah, I, I mean, she seemed really out of her depth in lots of ways. I mean, again, the, the concern... The worst case scenario was the only thing she knows anything about is in this narrow world of voucher and charter advocacy. Mm -hmm. And basically, that pretty much seems to be true, at least based on that three hours of questions. Um, On the higher ed side, I mean, she was asked a few questions uh, where she said, well, I'm just – she actually said, I'm just going to give that to my people. Mm -hmm. Which, in fairness, I I, I suppose you could certainly say that's what Arnie Duncan did. He was a K-12 person, didn't know about anything. He certainly gave over – it's not like he came in – with gainful employment in his head, that right. was somebody else's idea um, who came in and did all that. Yeah, I feel bad being too hard on her for not being fluent in in higher ed policy or in every single policy area because God knows I spent eight years trying to shake Arnie Duncan off a talking point and maybe mm-hmm. like twice got it uh, in year yeah. eight. But they apparently, I mean, one thing that the Trump transition team said when I was on calls with them was how thoroughly they were briefing and drilling these people and like – it really is interesting to me that that did not seem to include anything about ESSA, um, right. the federal law she will be charged with, not just enforcing, but to mm-hmm. a large degree still implementing, uh, or IDEA, which are like two of the you know four or five things that the education department actually does. Right. I mean, but how well they're briefing people. I, I remember a conversation I had, I forget if it was in person or an email, with uh, – uh, James Fallows, like mm-hmm. a, when uh, Sarah Palin was was got the vice presidential nod, and you know she was going to go out. People saying that you know all these concerns that she was unqualified. People, she was going to go and give a speech, and there was this kind of uh, you know, worrying among liberals. They're like, well, they're going to brief her, and she's going to learn all this stuff. And he just said, look, there's you can't substitute essentially a lifetime of paying attention by memorizing a bunch of stuff. It right. will be obvious. Right. Like, there is no way to get around that. And I, and I felt like that's what I was seeing in that hearing. So, like, for example, there was that moment where uh, Al Franken said they were having a dispute about the weird thing where she said, I've never been on the board of my mom's foundation when she had for mm-hmm. 17 years, and they mm-hmm. had just fixed it, like, that morning or something. But he said, look, he said, you know, student loan debt went up by 1,000%. That's not right. It went up by 110%. And she comes back, and she's like, oh, yes, 980%. Like, she kind of sat up, mm-hmm. and it, you could just see it was like, no, I memorized this. Mm-hmm. I know this one. It's 980% over eight years, which it isn't, which right. is crazy. Right. And if you if you ha- if you knew anything at all, or just stopped to think a second about just how the world works, there's no way in eight years the amount of student loan debt could increase tenfold. Right. Um, so, but she, but oh no, nine hundred eighty percent. So it was clearly something she knows something about, nothing about. Clearly something where she had memorized the answer. Um, I think that that. So I I kind of tried to figure out where it came from the mm-hmm. number and uh, Ben. Uh, Barrett, who works for us here, wrote a little post about it. The closest you can get, if you want to figure it out, is it's not that far away from the increase in direct lending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that I, I was sort of running yeah. through this. and I didn't really have time to, to, right. to look into this, but I was sort of going through that in my head because the other thing that occurred to me was that it was possibly out of date. 
I'm not sure there's any time, eight year time period. Yeah, where, where I'm not. I think in, I think in eight yeah. years it wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think because I know I wrote about things that have right. increased tenfold at some point mm-hmm. in the past uh, five to six years. But yeah, it was. I mean, that's just like that's not a hard data point to find. It's if, certainly been written about a lot. It if was you a go kind of like mistake. 2007 to 2015, you can mm-hmm. get close to 900. percent But again, just yeah. to be clear, that's because in 2010 we switched from a combined direct lending and fell program to a just direct lending program. Right. So if you exclude and if, and the year before the transition, we had about 110, 120, I forget the exact numbers, mm-hmm. billion dollars in direct lending and about $450 billion in uh, fell lending. Mm-hmm. So if you just look at direct lending, it, it went from maybe 120 to 900 and something, and you get close to it. But that's insane to exclude the fell data from the, the base. That's crazy for the purposes of that conversation where no one understands that's the distinction. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so she appears to be headed for a party line vote, yeah. um, which is interesting. I think one thing that is this is worth considering that I'm still trying to, to think through and figure out is how much any of this matters in terms of policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she certainly would not. I don't think – I think it's fair to say that Education Secretary has not been a post where they have always picked the brightest mind in the nation on education right. and, and put them in it. Um the people she has around her are always important. I mean, especially on higher ed, Arnie Duncan's policy was almost entirely shaped by the people he had around yeah. him. I'm really curious uh, what direction that's going to go in because right. I think that she is going to confirm, as far as I know, there is not any sign of anyone peeling away. Um, no. Lamar Alexander, who has had that job, has has stuck by her very strongly. I mean, this is just all about loyalty and power. Yeah. And, I, mean, I mean, if you have the majority in the Senate, you don't let your president – nominees fail under anything other than uh, extraordinary circumstances, which, of course, I guess one could argue have. So, yeah, we don't know who else is going to be there. I think the only people that have been announced are a bunch of, like, low-level political hacks who seem to have a weakness for sharing racist memes on Facebook. Um, So a few of them have kind of been announced as Department of Education people. We'll see how that goes. We know he's in the White House. A couple – I think they're sort of a a broad shape of staffing is Mm -hmm. is taking shape with some kind of interesting – folks in there that we should probably talk about once they're actually in place. But we don't. I mean, there has been no speculation on higher ed, which I think is probably what's important to yeah. keep a keep a thought on. I, I haven't seen anybody with any close connections. Um, no idea who, you know, the any any of the either policy shaping or like actual undersecretary positions uh, are, are going to end up going to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it just all seems to be kind of a blank right now. Um, and uh I mean, she did know enough to – she was briefed enough to know which questions to dodge in the sense that, like, they pushed her on gainful. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, no, we're just – I'm not going to make a commitment to enforce gainful. We're going to review that. They pushed her on OCR. Mm-hmm. She knew enough to say, I'm not going to make a commitment. We're going to review that. So mm-hmm. there were three or four things – I forget the rest on, – on higher ed where she knew enough to basically not commit to current policy – um, uh, which means, of course, that they're not going to continue current the, policy. The question about OCR was interesting, I thought, yeah. because she responded to it in a way that strongly suggested she did not know what the guidance was. Uh, because it was not about – it was not necessarily about whether or not they were going to enforce it. It was so, it was something slightly broader about, like, can you weigh in on, weigh in on the controversy around mm. it? And it's very easy to imagine a, like, politically adept answer that is – we understand there are some concerns about the rights of accused. Of course, we think tackling sexual mm-hmm. assault is important. We look forward to figuring out right, if right. this regulation has the correct or this guidance has the correct yes. balance on that issue. Like it, it really is not hard to come up with a non-answer answer to that that, yeah. that suggests you know what it's about. Right. And something about the way she said it, it just it 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 was odd. Which it, is strange, I, I, I'm right? not. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I can't read her mind. I don't know. Maybe she was nervous. But like it, that answer stuck out to me just because it didn't. It didn't even. It didn't seem like she was trying to dodge the question. It almost seemed like she wasn't entirely sure. Well, what and the question because was. you knew that was coming, right? I mean, anyone who would brief someone for that hearing, if you made a list of here are the ten questions you're definitely getting, that's on the list. I mean, right. there's just no question. She's been a donor to fire. It's. Right, I mean, it's, so, it's possible that she was yeah. concerned about getting into hot water, and so just sort of kept it to that very. Right. But it was. It was interesting to me. It just seemed like a question that it would be easy to answer better without answering. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sev- which was several of the questions yeah. at that hearing. S- side note: I don't think being a donor to fire is actually that terrible a thing. Uh, no, I I, mean, I I was not yeah. saying that. In no, a, I, know, I was I not mean, saying I mean, that as a derogatory point that. at all. Yeah. Um, they they've done a lot. They do right. a lot of interesting and in some cases I think very valuable work. Right. But she, that would suggest that she should be sort of familiar with the the contour mm-hmm. of the major issue that they've worked on over the past you know three to four years. Right. Um, there was, and then on the K twelve side, I mean, 
there was the whole IDA thing, which was a fiasco, honestly. And I mean, I mean, when she said it, and I, I will take, I mean, I think I tweeted this before I came mm-hmm. back. I'm like, she, she has to walk that back. And then she kind of did when she came back around to um, uh, the questioning from Maggie Hassan, who was like really sharp, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Um, she, that was, like, I think, her first like questioning in the spotlight of anybody right. um, in, in her time in the Senate, maybe one or because she was, this was a pretty early hearing. This feels like an extraordinarily long time ago. Yeah, right. It was two whole weeks ago. <laughs> it was before um, Inauguration Day. Um, well, as a, a friend of mine who was a Senate staffer for a long time said, well, she hasn't learned to be a senator yet, which means she actually asks good questions as opposed to just pontificating for mm-hmm. her entire five minutes. So so we should take advantage of it while she, before she's acculturated to be awful in the way that senators can be awful sometimes. Yeah, one one interesting thing for for higher that has I think some some importance for the Higher Education Act and for some other things was how contentious that hearing was among senators. Mm. There was not a lot of Senate comedy going on. If right. you did not watch it, you missed roughly thirty percent of the time being devoted to Democrats being upset that they oh, weren't yes. getting more time or another yeah. round or a second hearing to ask more questions, which was an objection that was stated like almost every person right. went into this. Clearly and on Alexander purpose, right? I mean, they must have I mean, decided yeah, they, yeah I, I, this was clearly a strategy. Yeah. And it was interesting because this is usually, Alexander started out saying, this is a committee where we work together, mm-hmm. having covered a lot of their hearings. Like, this was really, this was unusual. Um, it is yeah. it is not usually this clear that, like, everyone in the room does not like each other and is angry at each other. Yeah. Um, and that was, I think that has a lot of implications even for, like, a low-level level bipartisan overhaul of HEA. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, it's it's it seemed like it was the Democrats kind of serving notice on some level. This is different. I mean, and that, they more like they said that. I mean, there was yeah. this whole again. The, the senators have a bottomless appetite for arguing about Senate procedure. I mean, they just will, <laughs> they will do truly it on display forever. <laughs> right? You know, oh well, there was this precedent, and I don't think it's precedent. And there was only one round of questions, but nobody wanted another round of questions, and on and on and on and on. Um, and you know, uh, 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 Betsy DeVos sort of sat there through the whole thing and just kind of. <laughs> Hung in there, I guess, as best as she could. But uh, uh, I do think it was interesting. Mike Enzi brought up the Mike Enzi in his kind of somewhat meandering comments. But again, Mike Enzi is actually a pretty high-ranking person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did bring up the whole uh, income-based repayment thing, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting. And I think didn't I mean the chairman brought up the repayment rate calculation question, and he was complaining I think about the different loan repayment rate. Calculations was that him that did that? I, I honestly don't. There was remember. a little bit of you know. There was a little the, bit of that going on for the hardcore income-based repayment wonks out there <laughs> looking for their scrap. It did come up momentarily. Right. Um, nobody pushed uh, Betsy DeVos on that, which again, that's pretty. That's a little more obscure. Although, I mean, even this stuff. I mean, even like she's like, oh well, you know, I'm a visual learner. Again, if you pay any attention to this stuff, you kind of smack your head at somebody. Making a reference to a like very discredited theory. Okay, of, I think I mean, this is unfair. I think I think this is unfair. Really? I think being a visual learner is a thing that is a concept in the popular imagination, sure, completely untied from learning styles. Yes. And that was the context. Like I know that that I know that that research is bullshit. But and so, I absolutely but, and I absolutely describe myself so as a visual the Secretary learner. Of Education. I know, but like I th- I think my, it's it's a colloquial saying that is like untied. I don't know. I do it. I think there's a big difference between like I absorb information well visually and I have clearly bought into this. I don't know. I th- I think this I think this was unfair. It seemed like a, an attempt to kind of say something educationish. You know, it was. It, I mean, yeah, kind of... that that that's fair. But I think she does not appear to be someone who knows a lot about classroom styles or learning management mm-hmm. or classroom management or learning styles or, or curriculum necessarily right. to begin with. But I, th- I think that's a little bit of an unfair hit. All right. Um, we're going to have a relatively short podcast today <laughs> because Libby has a ton of work to do and all the other things that are happening <laughs> in the world. Um, so anything else on the DeVos nomination? Hmm. Nothing's coming to mind. It's yeah, it feels like a long time ago already. It's, yeah, right. it's, yeah. yeah I think, I think it is, it's going to be interesting. Um, one thing that that some a point that some of my coworkers made is, you know, you you do want an education secretary who understands the contours of the issue because, especially at some of these lower level departments that aren't constantly public facing, you know, she's going to go to, I don't know if she'll go to the union meetings, but she's going to go to things like the school superintendents groups. Like mm-hmm. you, you have to. She's going to be often going before a group of people who know this stuff, and having to convey a message to them. And I'm really curious to see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, she may stick extremely well to talking points. Uh, Artie Duncan did that. She may, but you know, she she is going to get policy questions, and she's going to have to interact with people who know this stuff quite a bit. And that usually flies under the public radar. And I'm, right. if if this turns out to sort of be a disaster, I'm curious if it still will. 
Well, yeah. I mean, in so many, I mean, so many of these, so much of what you say and do is contextualized by people's broader sense of you, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if their broader, if their broader sense of you is, I'm suspicious because you seem really inexperienced, right. and also that you're an ideological extremist, mm-hmm. particularly in the education context, right? Which I think a you know, a, a hardcore advocacy for vouchers is pretty extreme in that context, then people hear everything you say a different way. You know, whereas if you're seen as a moderate and you have a lot of experience, you know, experience in certain levels, which I think was true of Arne Duncan. I mean, he, he was moderate in the education context. Yeah, I was right? going to say this you know is also I mean? I, the other the other point I wanted to make is which feels uh, insane in retrospect. You can lose the benefit of the doubt. Arne Duncan was was confirmed by a voice vote yeah. uh, with no opposition because he was so universally mm-hmm. either admired or at least thought of as, as, as an OK choice. And yeah. it's, that's that's it's really interesting looking back on that. Um, education complains a lot about not being in the spotlight, but it certainly is more polarized now than it was eight years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think he he eight years ago, there was still a kind of functioning functioning center, both politically and within the the education policy world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't one anymore. You mm-hmm. know, I don't. I wouldn't. I'm, I don't even know how you would locate that mm-hmm. kind of bygone center. Um, mostly because because there just aren't a lot of kind of quote education reform people left in either party. It seems to me. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and they don't, nor is there really an agenda that they're kind of a bipartisan agenda that they would be organized around. Yeah, I think that actually. T- I think I think that is the the bigger issue is the mm-hmm. lack of a sort of with Common Core done. Yeah. Um, effectively, once and for all. The focus had shifted to done, higher you mean, ed. You mean accomplished? I mean not, done. Yes, I mean not, done. I done. I mean yes, accomplished, but right. also done in the sense of over. Uh, I mean it's it's a state by state battle right. at this point. And yeah. interestingly, I have not I have not followed super closely, but I have not seen any um, high profile efforts now that now that Trump is in office and clearly the, edu- the education right. department's going to drop it of anybody to get rid of it. I think the Common Core is pretty sure. pretty well ensconced yeah. uh, where it is. I, yeah, I haven't I haven't seen anything springing up to to replace that as the, mm-hmm. the issues that they're going to coalesce around. Right. All right. Well, our second issue, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the big paper that was released just a few days before the inauguration, and I think a little washed over by the news of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was a major new piece of research from Raj Chetty, John Friedman, um, and a number of other co-authors looking at uh, economic mobility by college. Yes. Um, this is really a kind of an astounding study. I spent a lot of time over the last week reading it and kind of going through a lot of the data tables that come along with it. Um, so just to review, um, the authors, they got data for every single person born in the United States in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like the most astounding part of the paper is that. Yeah, actually, I, I, I could spend all day appendix, talking about this data right? set, um, which means says, I, am finally, yeah. I am finally in a major national data set. This is so exciting. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm you in are there the somewhere. Millennials, yeah. right? You're in there somewhere. Um, uh, uh, no doubt kind of anchoring, looking, looking good and, and, um, because of your career success. Um, you hadn't thought about that because uh, it's the early millennials. It's the first one. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's early millennials, late Gen X, I think, and early millennials, yeah. although I guess that depends on where we draw that contentious right, right, right. Gen yeah. X millennial if, line. If, if Andrew were here, he would be pr- protesting that he's not a millennial. The, er- the oldest people in that data set are 37, I yeah. think is a, a, right. uh, a safe way right. to say this. So they used IRS data. They have every single person born in the United States in the 1980s. Um, they know where all of them went to college, and they know exactly how much all of them are making now. Mm-hmm. And again, how much and how much their families made. And how much their families made. Which yeah. is, yeah, this is yeah. astonishing. Which is, I mean, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, there, again, there's a sentence that says, you know, the sample is everyone born in the 1980s. Not the population. The sample is just everybody. They, it's like God's data set, essentially, for the purposes of this kind of analysis. And so they analyzed... Um, they use this to construct a mobility index for all colleges that basically what they chose to do is say um, of people who start, whose parents were in the bottom quintile, mm-hmm. um, what percentage end up as uh, people in their early 30s, which is where they say relative income stabilizes. People mm-hmm. get through grad school and professional school yeah, um, and uh, uh, end up in either the top quintile or the top 1% or even the top you know, one-tenths of 1%. Mm-hmm. Um and it's fascinating. And so, one, it shows access measures. And there were the New York Times kind of put up this fun interactive thing where they had this list of like colleges where more students come in from the top 1% than the bottom 60%, I think, of which there are quite a few, as it turns out. Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, that's, I, that's an interesting list. The New York Times is, is rightly or wrongly very obsessed with this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an, they have sort of quoted the market on it. It's, it's really the interesting thing to me about these lists is it's always the same. 
usual suspects. Mm. And one thing I actually would be interested in probably – this is probably not a question for economists, although it's always approached through an right. economic lens, but how prestigious colleges have ended up so different in terms of their ideas about social mobility, their yeah. ideal of whom they should be serving. I mean, Washington and St. Louis, for example, is always the worst. one or two. Like, all, they're, right. they're always near – and I went to Northwestern. Northwestern and WashU aren't very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, right. I, I visited both. Like, I, I interviewed at both. It's really interesting to me how colleges that are superficially so different end up with apparently pretty different values around their financial aid, around mm. who they're admitting, um, and how that sort of translates. And I, I would be really interested in like sociological work on this on this issue if we're going to sort of yeah. keep hammering at it. And um, again, this is this is essentially a portrait of these colleges from quite some time ago right. because this is who they were admitting. Um, for this cohort. So, so. the last, uh, my, my sister actually is one of the last people in this cohort. She was born in December 89. Mm-hmm. Um, she was college class of 2012. So okay. that's that's how far we're going in terms I didn't know of- I you had a younger sister. Yeah, I, I, yes, I have one yeah. sister. She's younger. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's that's oh, kind so of that's the your, last your sister, college class. Your sister Laura is, is uh, I didn't know she was that much younger than you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. She's, uh, she's precocious. Not, she's a She's two and a half years younger than me. Yeah, she's been at the LA Times for, for five years. Okay. Um, Four or five years. So, gotcha. she, yeah, well, whenever she, I just said when she graduated college. So if if people graduated right. on time, the last on-time group of graduations from this uh, data set would have been four or okay. five years ago. So not right. that long ago, actually. Yeah. Um, so there were a bunch of – so it's – yeah, it's the usual suspects on that. So just kind of, again, ticking off a bunch of the findings that I think really haven't even shown up in much of the news coverage because mm-hmm. I think if this were a normal – there are about 10 newsworthy findings in this study where, I mean, I think the median number of newsworthy findings in a typical academic study is zero. <laughs> and you get if you get six standard deviations away, it's still, you're still at one, mm-hmm. right? You know, mm-hmm. in this one, I think there's about 10. So just a few others. Um, basically, they refute the mismatch of critique of affirmative action, at least for uh, uh, low-income students. They say there's really no evidence to suggest that low-income students who end up in very prestigious college are being mismatched. They do about it the same as everybody else mm-hmm. in those colleges. And so they say the idea that they would have been better off going to a less prestigious college, there's no nothing in this data set to suggest that that's true. That's fascinating. Um, and I'm assuming that if they – they don't have race data in there or they didn't, they didn't look at it. But uh, there's no reason to think that that would be different for um, students of color, particularly since there's a stronger correlation between – low income and academic challenge than being a person of color. Right. And one thing um, that sort of ties into what we already knew mm. from some of this research, which is I've done a couple, you know, doesn't doesn't matter where you go to college, your view of literature type pieces mm. once in a while. And the findings always that we're always stronger that where you go matters more for low income students and especially for low income students of color yeah. in terms of life outcomes. So this right. this lines up pretty, pretty right. closely with that in that case. Right. Um, they, they basically found that if you want to get, if you're in the bottom quintile and you want to get to the top quintile, you can go to a lot of places that will do that for you. If you want to get to the top 1%, however, you more or less have to go to an Ivy plus college. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference between the two kinds of social mobility. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they note that the, the average per student spending in the really good social mobility colleges, again, first to fifth quintile is only about $6,000 a student. Whereas in the one, the really good top 1%, it's like $80,000 a student. Man. So big differences there yeah. in terms of how you kind of want to uh, think about these things. I'm glad you have read the study extremely closely because yes. I clearly yeah. have been caught no, up no, in the okay. news cycle. And this is much, much of this is – Bring uh, it home. Uh, read it at night. Or, it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 well, it's well written. I, I, I yeah, glanced I mean, through and I read the write-ups, yeah. but I'm glad you're, yeah. you're going through this for me. And you can – so you can also um, – you, so they looked at upward mobility. You mm-hmm. can look at it in every direction using mm-hmm. the data tables that are in the back. And I did this over the weekend. So I ran a, I created a downward mobility index. Oh, which interesting. I'm going to be hoping to publish somewhere pretty soon. Um, can you can you spoil any any part of the downward mobility index? Sure. I don't think that many people listen to our podcast. So <laughs> so um, for those of you who are listening, sneak preview for something. John and <clears throat> is John, our producer, is looking at me like, dude, I spent all this time producing your podcast, <laughs> and now you're telling me that that no one listens to it. They get my really hot takes though. Um, they get they get my right. takes that are too hot for the week. So, so yeah, I created a downward mobility index, um, and there's a, there's a bunch of different kinds of colleges that end up inside of it. So there are um, there are a lot of actually the most prestigious institutions have a lot of downwardly mobile students because all they do is enroll rich people. Mm-hmm. So so just even though it's not all that likely that a rich person will fall from the first to the fifth uh, or from the top to the bottom quintile, if you enroll enough of them, you'll get some of them. 
Mm-hmm. Especially so if, that. I mean, there's still people still in their grad <coughs> still in graduate school in their early 30s. Like, I, I, I think I there's mean, a, yeah. you know, there's, uh, when you're right. looking at that small of a sample. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. In terms of. So there's um, uh, places where that enroll a lot of Mormon students because there's a big uh, attrition among female graduates of uh, predominantly Mormon mm-hmm. uh, uh, colleges who uh, don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just, you can look at both the gender you can look at like how many people are in each quintile and the gender stuff. So there's a little cluster of those places. Um, a bunch of liberal arts colleges that are not quite the best liberal arts colleges but are expensive. Um, there's a bunch of those. I mean, and these are pretty Makes high. Sense. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, you know, 1,100 SATs and rich parents is not mm-hmm. ne- in go to a quote good school, uh, not necessarily a guaranteed pathway to economic success, mm-hmm. which shouldn't surprise anybody, I don't think. Um, the number of public universities, there's a fairly small number of public universities in the list, and they really seem to be places where people like smoke a lot of marijuana. I got to be honest. I mean, it's it's like, I'm, I'm dead serious. It's like 12 <laughs> places, Humboldt, uh, UC Santa Cruz, University of Carolina, of Colorado, uh, uh, Evergreen State College. That I mean, is really funny. I, mean, I was trying to, I'm trying I'm to come up with an like, alternate explanation here involving uh, like agriculture, right, but I don't, I don't know. I, mean, I, think I just kind of maybe they're going into the pot business and it's under the table, and so the IRS is maybe it, that's what it is. is. Not, it's right, not well, representing their income accurately. That's a charitable explanation <laughs> for what's going on at some of these places. Um, yeah, a lot, I feel like a lot of kind of upper middle class, unmotivated, out of state, out of state, wealthy kids. Um, pushes your numbers down in this in this case and then um, a ton of art schools man art schools are such a disaster i mean just all the, i mean even the like the best art schools yeah for-profit art schools non-profit art schools i just i think that uh i mean i think if you're going to be an art i mean there the way to be an artist has been known for centuries and centuries and centuries which is that you apprentice yourself to another artist and that's fine, and you don't make very much money, and you're probably not going to get rich as an artist, but it's, it's cool you get to be an artist. You probably shouldn't so, – either you or your parents probably shouldn't write a couple hundred thousand dollars in checks on the way. Yeah, I mean, I, that, if we're talking you know? about just like straight down vulnerability in terms of income, right. I don't think it surprises anybody from a wealthy family – going to art school, even a very good art school, that they're going to come out of that school making yeah. like significantly you know. I mean, lifetime right. long, way less than their parents. <clears throat> like that that right. is not a surprising <clears throat> finding. But it also may not be, you know, it may not be as contrary to expectations mm-hmm. as some of what these others are, I would say. <clears throat> yeah, I am uh, I guess I'm less concerned about that than the debt finance for profit art yes. schools, right? Yeah. It's mom and dad finance, it's free country, you do what you want. Um yeah, and I, f- I feel like looking at it through the lens of mobility in yeah. that case actually like ob- obscures some stuff because um, if, right. if you're from the bottom quintile, the, the bottom quintile or the bottom two quintiles, and you take on a lot of debt and go to art school and don't move out of mm. it, you may not even show up as downwardly mobile. Right. But you're in a lot worse. You're in a lot worse place. Right. Uh, and that's just. I mean, again, you can. I feel like I'm giving away the secrets here, mm-hmm. but you can take the data. You can use the data that, that it, the data tables that come with that paper and look at mobility in any direction. So you can basically construct a five by five matrix. Um, for every college and look at it up, 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 down, sideways, in a circle, I mean, whenever you want. And they, so they just looked at it one way, um, but, but you can do it anyway. Yeah, that's something I'm wondering. Like, what are, this is an insane data set. Like, what are the future possibilities of this data? You could, I mean, I was talking to one of the, it was, you know, I never, I never thought about this. I was talking to one of the, to the, one of the co-authors um, and he said, well, somebody asked us, could you, could we calculate uh, what are the odds that if you go to a college, you'll marry someone from that college? And the answer is yes. yes. Of course yeah, you can. He's yeah. like, no, you know, we it doesn't really have anything to do with tax policy. So, we, you know, we Somebody's really going to do it, though. But, yeah, and I was like, yeah, you're going to end up on MSNBC with Princeton Mom or something. I mean, like if, if you want to melt – The free economics guys would totally right. do that. Somebody's, somebody's going to so do it. So, I mean, yeah. they, they could – I mean, they are sitting on a data set that could probably yeah. answer that question in like 15 minutes yeah. if you wanted to. They, but they, you know, they're they did this in in uh, working with the Treasury Department and their economists, and so they're interested in a certain set of questions. Um, but but it's out there; you can figure it out. So you want to talk about melting down the New York Times is like servers, man. Oh my god! Put that information out there. I mean, you could, if it's IRS data, you could do the amount that every college contributes to society, correct, in terms of the tax receipts of their graduates. Sure. Yeah. Which I don't know is a great thing to calculate, but like that is, yeah. I mean, this is the possibilities of this data set are Net really positive, net negative, right? Yeah. You know, how much do we spend yeah. on each college? Um, um, how much do we get back? Uh, yeah, you could definitely do that. Um, 
the other, the frame of the study sort of plays into something I've mm. been thinking about, and this is the part where I preview big pieces that someday will actually get written, maybe. Some piece I talk about on, on this podcast I will write, uh, and I've been talking about with, with some editors, is the total absence of education from Trump's economic worldview. Like this is a mm-hmm. this is a study that made a lot of sense to do under Obama, who was obsessed with education and social yeah. mobility. Um, and clearly, there it's not. I'm not saying it's unworthy of doing now, but under a lot of previous presidents from both parties, it would be kind of not terribly difficult to see how this could translate into policy, or at least into policy questions that mm-hmm. they might be interested in exploring um, in terms of encouraging more social mobility, rewarding colleges with it, trying to angle them in that direction, even if it's just like having a bunch of seminars. Trump is unique in that like his vision of the economic future of America depends 0% on people getting an education. Um and that I think like it's it's the context in which the study came out compared right. to the context it would have come out in a year to a year and a half ago. It's just mercantilism it's so and manufacturing totally different. and trade wars. I mean and, it's so much yeah. of it is like telling people without a college degree that it's okay that they didn't go to college and it's okay if their kids don't go to college mm. and he's going to make it okay. And that is that is even, you know, several bridges further than yeah. the Santorum school of too many people are going to college. I right. mean, this is this is really a, a different Well, the, the data set includes lines for people who didn't go to college, yeah. and the numbers are not good. I'm, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, so, I'm less than shocked. I mean, so, I'm not saying this is based on fact or that I think right. it will work, but that this is sort of an interesting shift. And if any of you have thoughts on it, I am mm. exploring how to write about it and beyond like, huh, that's interesting. Right. Um, it's an interesting subject just because the cons- the bipartisan consensus around the other view has been so strong. Right. So I mean, long, that right? is, you I mean, know, to, to uh, you know, a year ago, the argument on the left was like, is relying on education too, much? too neoliberal? Yeah, that's like, always been is it, It's not going to fix inequality. Like, right. But there was this center left to center right to right, really, consensus mm-hmm. that like this was the right thing to do and it will elevate you and it is the way that we progress as a society and it's why it's important that we aren't standing scoring well on standardized tests and, and so on and right. so forth and without that underpinning i wrote about this a little bit with regards to his inaugural address but one interesting thing is about trump is you just don't get the idea that education is part of his idea of america or his vision for america at all right well it didn't matter for him right i mean, right. I mean i'm sure yeah. from his own uh, perspective, which is the only perspective that exists, I think, um, from his perspective. Uh, did, did he, like, learn anything in college? No, he just went there to kind of – because that was what you were supposed to do. But I'm, I'm sure he didn't learn anything in college that, that helped him to make the money he's made or not made or pretended to have made or whatever. So mm-hmm. – um, and – uh, he's happy to like surround himself, and I mean, all the people who work for him. I mean, he's like all of his businesses don't depend on lots of well-educated people to run. I don't think it's about. He he loves the poorly educated. Yeah, right? Yeah, they're great. I love them. That's what he said. Um, that was about a year ago. Um, yeah. Sorry to yeah. sorry to pivot back from this no, okay. uh, interesting study, but that I think to me is right. one thing that like I'm just reading the study differently as a policy-oriented mm. person than I would have, uh, particularly when college ratings were right. were so much in the forefront. Um, but but even even after that, I'm. Yeah, it's it's it has a lot of implications for where higher ed policy goes that I think a lot of people have not fully processed yet. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we'll be. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of um, it's almost hard to think through all the implications that these kind of data sets exist now. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, they went in to answer one set of questions, but I'm sure there are a hundred sets of questions that I haven't even thought to ask. I think we've come up with a couple just now. Yeah, I, I mean, I could come up, we could do a whole podcast on like questions yeah. you can answer with this data set and right. should they be asked or answered. Yeah. Um, they only, I, I assume I, this is an incredibly restricted data set. I mean, this is like, they, they can ask these questions or their graduate assistants or, or whatnot, but I assume like another researcher can't waltz in and be like, hey, I want to find out who marries each other to get on MS, get on MSNBC yeah. and get famous. Like, I think so. I mean, I mean, what I was told by someone was, mm-hmm. you know, that the that other that the other economists didn't realize you could do this, right? So they had this huge head start. Like the, it was just not well understood in the field because clearly this is a great thing for their careers as it should be, yeah. right? But I mean, like Raj Chetty and his group and his, I mean, they are just so far ahead of everyone, and they're, like their data is so overwhelmingly overwhelmingly better that mm-hmm. they are now the definitive answer to a lot of questions that people had just kind of guessed about. Um, so here's the other. Can you fake a unit record out of this? Can you take it back to K twelve? Because um, that's where I mean, Chetty also is. That's where so much of his most famous research has been done. Probably yes, because you could just look at where your parents were living mm-hmm. 
and then just guess about where the public school is. Yeah. Right? You know, so you would just yeah. say if everyone it, it would probably went to the skew, school, it would probably skew for the top three to five percent. Yeah. Um, or for, um, for places with a lot of Catholic schools, would right. pro- probably not not badly enough. Right. But um, you know exactly where everybody was living yeah. because p- parents are taking them as deductions in their tax returns. Right. You know where the school boundaries are. And you or know where the school boundaries are. So you, that would be huge. You know what God. public school they were in boundary for. Mm-hmm. Um, where they moved around. Yeah, and so it's pre it's pre most of the charter movement. Yeah. Um. So that wouldn't that wouldn't interfere. Yeah, that I that mm. that could be interesting. Someone told me that they had to like become de facto IRS employees in order to get access right. to this stuff. So I don't think that. And then it's you, you know be you easy. also know if people go on to have children mm-hmm. and where they live, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to like if you wanted to figure out like if you again you just want to make some assumptions about what school district did you go did you probably go to school in and what public school district did your kids are your kids probably in now? You can so, see all that. So here's a question I have that knowing right. knowing who worked on this, I wouldn't be shocked if they're looking into. You could also measure that way the effect of education on neighborhood segregation. Mm-hmm. If you are from a segregated low-income community and you somehow go to, depending right. on what college you go to, how likely are you to end right. up moving back into a similar neighborhood by mm-hmm. the time you have kids? Interesting kind of side finding. They found that colleges, um, even elite colleges, basically everyone who goes to them has about the same outcome. So it really is this great leveler on how much you earn, but not in terms of marriage. So, like, associative mar- mating by class isn't disproven by that. And this still kind of is a thing. Um, and you can actually – there's one data table where they break the data up by year cohort and by ventile, which is 5%. And, and that, you can that is see, a new word for me. That's yeah. Uh, and you can see the marriage rates uh, by essentially 15 types by each year through each cohort throughout all the 1980s. Like, so 80, 81, 82, 83, 84 percent married um, – uh, yeah, by like in the Ivy Plus places, in the community colleges, in the in the yeah, it's amazing. Man, we could do like a five minute segment every week. I'm right. just like let's play with this data yeah. and or come can, in with come in with the fact that the, we learned. Uh, yeah, you can look at the 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 income cutoff, like the median income in each one of these things. So like these are all so basically these are all uh, uh, 2015 dollars, mm-hmm. but the median income of the top, I'm gonna say. The top 5% going into the Ivy Plus institutions went from like 2 million to 3.5 over 10 years. So, so like the really rich people who were sending their kids to Ivy Plus institutions were a lot richer at the end of this cohort than the beginning. So again, like the rich just – you just sort of see all that accumulation of wealth and privilege happening at the top of society right in those numbers. I'm serious. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and look All at right. this, and I will come I will come with some some <laughs> okay. facts that I have learned because this is yeah, yeah this is this is fascinating yeah. and a little creepy in a way that I'm like oh I I, I get at least the emotional reaction to your no, records now in a way that right. I didn't before, and I don't think it's because there. I am in this data set. It's just like right. fascinating, but also slightly horrifying that like this is a thing that we can yeah, learn. It's amazing. Mostly fascinating. Knowledge is great, but yeah. Um, one of the things I've I've been thinking about is the difference between sort of more uh, inaccurate survey findings and what happens when you look at actual data and actual, you know, actual data preferences. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something here in this as well. Like we've had so much less accurate measures on a lot of these questions. And right. now uh, there are, you know, I mean, I just feel that it's going to change some of this conversation um, or should change some of this conversation should. around using yeah. using uh, earnings as a metric, for example, using right. earnings as a proxy for social mobility, even mm-hmm. like, that I wonder how you know this trickles down into that into this conversation. I mean, including like government surveys that we use, like the not government surveys so much. I'm thinking more. This is sort of more outside the realm of education. Um, okay. But when you, when you move from like listening to people's preferences as they mm-hmm. say them to studying their revealed preferences as shown in data, mm-hmm. um, you end up with very different findings. And I think that a lot of the conversation around measuring colleges by outcomes has been using extremely imperfect data and with this much better data i wonder how that changes yeah that's um, a good question yeah it really it's mind-blowing it's been it's been a the last week i've been i spent like half my time obsessed and concerned with everything happening in the world and then the other half kind of <laughs> just thinking about this big study and this big data set and all the stuff that you could do with it which has been a weird thing to kind of go back and forth in between so um yeah, I basically spent my weekend protesting and making a reverse mobility index for all American colleges. So that was fun. That, was my <laughs> seems like a, that seems like a useful, right? useful yeah. use of your time. Yeah. Half of it was. You know, I'm not even sure which half, <laughs> depending on the context. So. What a weird, yeah, what, what a weird, what a weird, like, combination of sentences to be saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
All right. Well, you need to go back. I do need to at some point. Yeah, get, a lot get of off this podcast and, and do some work. But um, so I think next time we're going to try to have uh, Tracy McMillan Cottom come in and talk about her new book, Lower Ed. We're going to see if we can get her on the phone because um, her book comes comes out I think later in February. Am I right? Yeah, sometime or? sometime in February, I believe. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah, I would I would love to talk to her about. So that should be fun. Well, I th- I don't know if she'll be able to get into the studio, but if we can get her on the yeah. phone, uh, if not. So, all right, well. Shall we do Pop Culture Minute? Uh, yes, absolutely. Shall we do Pop Culture Minute where I talk about Northwestern basketball? Go for it. <laughs> um, the one bright spot of news in the, the world this week is that for the first time since the NCAA tournament was started in 1939, Northwestern appears to be having a shot at it. So It's never gone? Never gone. We're, uh. the, we're one of like six or seven uh, teams who have never gone wow. and like the, we are the worst by like a lot of, of ones mm. who could have who have been eligible to participate the whole time we may be the only one it is That's a exciting. it is a Cubs like drought um, and we're now seven and two in the Big Ten apparently I have a policy of not paying attention until February because this is not the first time that they mm-hmm. seemed bubbly and then it falls apart right. immediately but this is um, they've won more Big Ten games now than they did in like three of my years in college combined wow. so uh, this, is, this is very exciting. And you can root for the basketball team with a clear conscience. I know I can. I can. It, so. Um, so this is this is exciting news for for That's me good. in my life. And the Americans comes back in March. Is it? So I didn't know it was. Is it always that early? Is it always in March? So it's actually. I thought it was later than usual. Yeah. And it turns out that this year. And it turns out that I'm just wrong. And this is about when it came back oh, last okay. year. It it started like right around New Year's Day, but for its first season. So oh, okay. I've been like, I think we're really late. I think it needs to be back already. All but right. it turns yeah. out uh, we all just need a distraction from the I, world. I, I've been th- actually I've been thinking about this, and there's this part of me, maybe I'm wrong about this, but there's this part of me that feels like on the many, many list of reasons to be mad at Donald Trump, I feel like he's ruining the Americans for me a little bit. A little bit. Because, because I it, I think that the the experience of watching the Americans and the, the whole kind of mood and aesthetic of the show is like deeply informed by the eventual fall of the Soviet Union. Yes. You know, like this, this, yes. this sense that these two people are fighting a doomed war and they don't know it. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just kind of part of the tragedy of it all. And they have this deep commitment to a a, a very complicated and important society and culture that doesn't exist anymore. And, and kind of, you know, oddly was around for like 45 years, which is not that long in the grand scheme of things. I mean, mm-hmm. for me, someone growing up, you know, I was born in 1970. Mm-hmm. It was all the way until I was in college. You, right? you missed so, the Jenny data set. So <laughs> that, exactly saying. right. You know, so, but I mean, you, but, but growing up, you never had some sense that the, the USSR would go away, mm-hmm. right? It was the other massive civilization that we were at war with. Right. It, Cold War, but nonetheless. Um, but now that the Russians seem to be winning all the time, I'm like, oh, well, you know. It's like that joke someone made, you know, a while ago that, you know, the last scene of the Americans is just the two of them sitting on a couch watching TV in 2016 high-fiving, <laughs> you know? But I mean, I think there's like, I'm like, okay, so, so now No, you're right. I think that does change. Right. I think that, that does change the, the balance of it. So I've always assumed it would end in 1989, mm-hmm. you know, that we would sort of, something would happen. Mm-hmm. God, I mean, if they both lived through the end of the series, mm-hmm. it would be like four years later, and we would we would they would be watching the fall of the wall, mm-hmm. and that's how I've always had that as the ending to the show in my mind. Yeah, I think I think they have as well, but it's interesting. Um, we covered the Americans obsessively, which is hilarious mm-hmm. that they advertise mm-hmm. on our site because of like, have you read our site? Yeah, like, this right. is not necessary. Yeah. Um, but we, my co- my coworker Caroline talked to them at the Television Critics Association about like. The quote unquote relevance the of the Americans, which I think, but yeah, the writers and showrunners, which I think right. is like kind of silly because it has always been an extraordinarily relevant show on mm-hmm. in, in other dimensions. Yeah. They're not super happy about being asked that question. And I think they, one of them is ex CIA. They said right. they're they not really surprised by anything that has happened in the news. And that mm-hmm. clearly has been a part of their, their thought process for a couple of years. Um, I think this is going to be a breakout year for the Americans, but I think it is, it's going to, it's interesting. It will be interesting to see if it feels different to watch like a, it. Like a, everyone finally starts watching Breaking Bad kind of A little breakout. bit, yeah. yeah. The number of people who have, well, and you probably get this too because they tweet directly at us, right. who have like listened to me finally after three to four yes. years and started watching right. it in the past year. Maybe because Amazon Prime has finally gotten to more places and people are uh-huh. watching stuff there. That's the only place it is. I don't know. It just seems like finally in the past year, a lot of people are like, oh my God, you're right. It's right. amazing. And I may live in a bubble and my predictions are wrong, yeah. but I have a sense that, that, that this is this is going to be its big year as a show. I'm, I'm excited for it. It's always yeah. so good. Uh, and not a lot not a lot of TV I'm watching right now. So Yeah, same. 
Uh, I, I started watching The Young Pope, but it is so ridiculous mm-hmm. I can't handle it. Yeah, I haven't. I, I watched. I feel like I can engage with The Young Pope without watching it. You know, just by knowing what's going on. You know? <laughs> no, by knowing that The Young Pope exists, you have pretty right. much engaged yeah. with The Young Pope to the degree that I. Have I watched like ten minutes Pope. of it for some reason. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is what this, I thought. This is here. It's kind of interesting. I don't, yeah. I'm not going to watch this for hours. I don't think. Yeah. Um, Girls, last season is starting pretty soon. Oh, that's right. I actually, yeah. I'm a demographic uh, oddity in that I've never watched it. You've never watched Girls? I've, I've like seen a couple I'm episodes. A, I've never I'm watched a big fan it. Of Girls, I think Girls yeah. is a like a very good and actually like oddly, given its ubiquity, sort of underappreciated show. Like mm-hmm. it was such a thing, but then it became controversial for lots of weird reasons, and I think it became polarizing, and everyone felt like it became, I think, a little unfashionable to uh, to say that you liked it. But I think it's a really original interesting show like there's nothing if you watch it there's nothing else really comparable in terms Mm -hmm. of it's like uh the conviction of its perspective i think Mm -hmm. you know and i think there's a lot of like really interesting things going on with girls so and the last season was quite good um so uh, someday i'll someday i'll get caught up my wife is catching up on veep right now Mm. i've been evangelizing for years and she finally she's binge watching all the way through. yeah veep is another one i need to watch i do need to watch all the way through i've seen a lot of episodes here and there and enjoyed them but i have never like sat down and watched it in a in a committed well now that like hbo go is a thing that you can put on your tv it's a lot easier no stealth no stealth higher ed oscar movies this year unless i'm forgetting Um, hidden figures is the one that's closest and that it's will the oscars be done by the time we meet again that's a great question. Who uh, knows? I don't think we don't have a February date yet. I don't think that's so. Right. Um, I'm looking at when they are. The, the nominations are out. The nominations can, are out. We can do Oscars. Um, we can probably do all. Oscars next time. I think so. I I liked Moonlight better than La La Land, although I've seen them both. <clears throat> I don't really buy into the La La Land backlash. Uh, I don't quite. Under, I mean, I thought it was a really good movie. I enjoyed. It. I mean, I sort of, sort of understand it, mm-hmm. but the backlash. But I don't know. Did you see? I have not yet. So okay. I've seen. I was. Yes, we can do it next time because it's February twenty sixth. Um, okay. So I have seen my usual at this time of year average of like three of the nine. Right. Um, I saw Manchester by the Sea, which I have is, not seen that. It's like sad boyhood is the okay. way that I would describe oh, it, and right. it's like okay. very slice of life. All right. And like you keep sort of waiting for something like a giant dramatic moment, and it keeps not arriving because that's not right. how life is. It's a wrenching. It's a wrenching movie. It's really okay. bleak. Um, it's like funny in places, but it's really bleak. Right. Uh, I've seen Hidden Figures, which, which is like cliche in the best way. Okay. Like you know, every beat that movie is going to hit, right. and you still, it's still like very Wasn't satisfying a, to see it. Just to bring this full circle, was yeah. there not a moment in the DeVos hearings when one of the Republican senators said, "You know, Hidden Figures, that movie about women in math." Yes, yes, yeah. and I was like, like, "That is not like it, it was like." And I think you're missing something. Yeah, you know, it was, did you just forget what else it was about? <laughs> Yeah, it was it was, was really awesome. funny, and it was like that might yeah. have been Mike Enzi also. No, yeah, it, it, is, it is not. It's interesting that movie has been like weirdly popular among really Republican popular. senators, um, yeah. and very popular nationally, which is probably mm. why. But it, it does seem to be coming up in the Senate a lot. Um, <sighs> Ted Cruz wrote this like cute post about seeing it with his daughter. Did he, really? Uh, he really did. It was. It's actually he appeared to have gotten the point of it slightly better than whoever brought it up in the in the DeVos hearing. Um, okay. It's good. I, I definitely want everyone to see it. It is not a movie that like will surprise you in anything other than that, like, they made a movie about black women in STEM, which is awesome. But it is very much, like, historical overcoming racism. Mm. Uh, And going to space movies combined, which are two genres that are good, so it worked out well. Um, What else have I seen? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll report back next okay. time. We'll do our Oscars. All right, Oscars we'll, we'll see. We can. I mean, some of them are on. You can watch Loving now on uh, on demand. I'm going to do that. Um, well, again, uh, thank you, Libby, for coming by. Uh, thank you, as always, to John Simone and the rest of the production crew here at New America. Thank you to all of you for listening to our podcast. Um, we will be back in a month. Uh, be safe, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.